That is Herb Alpert, the T1 of Brass. I am Carson Sestouli, and this is another edition of Fangraphs Audio. I don't believe I'm speaking out of turn, listener, when I say that it's every great baseball fan's dream uh, to hear an accomplished scholar discuss at length and sometimes in somber tones um, what it is to be a Kansas City Royals fan. Luckily, that's a dream that's about to come true. For in this edition of the podcast, I interview Will McDonald of Royals Review. Will is not only a major author and co-proprietor of Royals Review, but he's also a, a real-life actual doctor of philosophy. Together, we talk about the historical futility of the Kansas City Royals, the psychology of the Royals fan over those last 15 years, and additionally, the crop of prospects that the Royals might be soon calling up. For those listeners who have not had a dream of listening to an American academic discuss the futility of the Royals, might I encourage you to skip about two-thirds of the way through the podcast, where Mr. McDonald discusses the article in which he announced that Carl Crawford would be buying an antiquarian bookstore in Boston. It's a story that McDonald wrote on a whim, but was then subsequently picked up by the L.A. Times, New York Times, and a number of other media outlets. It's pretty great and absurd. And without any further delay, uh, here is my interview with Will McDonald of Royals Review. As noted, I am Carson Sestouli. Uh, as uh, also probably noted, this is Fangraphs Audio, and our guest today is the uh, contributor, probably some kind of uh, co-proprietor, if not sole proprietor, of Royals Review, Will McDonald. Will, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. You're doing you're doing great. Uh, well, you uh, we have you here. We have you here uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, obviously, um, one big one is because you're a talented man, a talented writer, uh, and. You, your work is pretty excellent, sort of uh, above and beyond the coverage it provides of the Royals. And, and frankly, um, you know, maybe up till this year, there hasn't been much reason for a, a person who's not a Royals fan uh, to sort of take much interest in them, except for this sort of exercise in absurdity. I mean, do, have you have you felt like that? Um, I, I mean, or how long have you felt like that? The, t- <laughs> the team is kind of like a. Uh, like an exercise in absurdity, or, uh, or, or maybe a sort of like a, a, a quick um, route towards depression. Well, it would have to be at least a decade. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, I, I'm not a true old timer, but uh, for the Royals, it seems like since the this really the whole naughty oddies or whatever the name for the last decade was has has pretty much been awful. I would say at least a decade. It's been pretty consistently depressing. Uh, was there a sort of was there an event? Was there like a lone event that that caused this the, the decline? Because they were, uh, and, and again, I don't know your exact age, but I mean they were a pretty mighty organization um, in what the late seventies, early eighties. They won a World Series sometime there. That you know they had players like uh, George Brett and. Uh, you know, Mark Gubiza, uh, players who were sort of like undeniably great, and then um, uh, I remember there was some there was a Bo Jackson situation in the early nineties. Uh, was there was there one event? Was it a series of events that led to their uh, that led to their decline? Well, I think it's it, like all things. It's it's a little more complicated than the traditional histories, but basically for for most 
you know, the, the remaining hardcore Royals fans, there's a couple of touchdown events, and those are really the shift in ownership from Ewing Kaufman uh, through some kind of intermediary stages, ultimately ending up with the, the Glass family owning the team. And that, um, I'm going to mess up the exact dates, but that took place in the 90s. And then the other thing that happened um, was the night... In terms of the decline of the franchise, um, a really nice uh, line to put down is the 94 strike. Um, through the late 80s and even the early 90s, the Royals had, had declined a bit and they were becoming an older team, but they were still a, a, a very good team. And this was also the two-division days. So, you know, back then you could win 90 games and you were almost certainly not going to win your division, and in, in some cases, you know, that's when the A's were particularly awesome. You you might not even necessarily be close in the AL West, right? Um, but the Royals, the Royals were kind of hanging around, um, and in some ways, were still a, a good team. Um, but then, uh, up till the '94 strike, I think uh, in the, the the waning days of that season, the Royals won something like. 12 or 13 games in a row and they had put themselves back into the the race um, and I I think there was a an AL Central by then but I, I could be wrong but anyway but that was kind of it um, obviously that there was no more 94 season and then we'd have a shortened season in 95 and at that point the Royals had, had new ownership and the Glass family who who still owns the Royals uh, are usually recounted as being uh, one of the real hardline, anti-player, anti-spending, anti-free agency, whatever you want to call it, owners that that really made that that strike so intractable. And then coming out of uh, '94 and '95, it, it seems like for about the next six or seven years really even longer, um, the Royals kind of did a complete teardown uh, of, of, the, of the notion of being a competitive team. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Joe Sheehan always used to write about was sort of MLB's anti-marketing that, that so many of the owners will do. And uh, I, I think that the Royals really did a lot of that. They cut a lot of their spending. Um, and a lot of the would be the discretionary spending, the kind of things uh, that you need to build a minor league system. But that that all took a long time. And the the funny thing about the Royals is that, on one hand, they've for very long been completely hopeless, but they also haven't quite always been as terrible as we want to remember. I don't know if that makes sense, but even through the late '90s, the the farm system was producing actually a lot of exciting talent um, and but of course it was it was lopsided and they they couldn't do anything with it um, and that's sort of that Johnny Damon generation of position players that the Royals developed in, in the late 90s um, but yeah the, the main history of it would be the in terms of what people around KC talk about is the change in ownership and the 94 strike and the, the new owners sort of reluctance to 
exist in the new uh, climate, uh, the economic climate, the climate of MLB. You know, I, I'm curious, um, and, and this may be hard for you to have much perspective on, but I'm curious as to how you um, how you approach this. Um, you, now, you, you noted that that maybe the especially the late '90s Royals weren't really always as bad as um, as as we might remember. You know, given the sort of things that have happened in you know, in between, or just the sort of um, the length of that stretch of, of futility. Um, but I'm curious as to what, as to how, as a, a fan, you approach that. You know, because obviously, um, you know, if you're from a place, uh, there's some sort of intrinsic value just in having a team allegiance at all. Uh, you know, even if it is to kind of a bad team. But it's also nice when they when they play well. I mean, you know, it it it, 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 it could be sort of like you know, theoretically, you're you're a sports fan because it's giving you some sort of joy. Uh, or ought to be giving you some sort of joy. Um, I mean, with teams that are never making the playoffs, though, that's not happening. So I'm wondering, like, um, what you know, what your reaction during this time period was, or or over this time period, when especially maybe like the mid aughts, um, there wasn't even you know n- you know now you have a f- farm system in place at least that's kind of exciting, where there didn't even really appear to be that sort of optimism. I mean. Uh, did, did you develop any coping mechanisms? Was writing was writing about the team part of that? Well, when I look back on it, uh, I, I am sometimes embarrassed and almost struck by a a really I don't know uh, kind of profound sense of futility. And um, you know, it is it is it's fun to look back at say you know stuff we were writing about in two thousand seven or 2006, where we're having these intense fan debates about, um, you know, who should play, are the Royals burying somebody at AAA by signing Doug Mankiewicz to play first base, or, um, you know, did we get enough back from when we traded Ross Glode away, or stuff like that, and... um, or was Jose, is Jose Guillen an upgrade over Emil Brown? You know, all of these things... And um, it's, I mean, basically we exist online because we're bored with our normal lives, and so it's fun to talk about these things, and that's really the only reason for it. Oh, no, wait, did you just say that we we exist online because we're bored of our actual lives? That's really uh, (laughs) stripping down to reality uh, uh, everyone who would be listening to this. Well, at least least (laughs) there are moments in our lives where we're not being we're not experiencing pleasure right at that moment. So then we, we, we pull up a website. Um, but it is, it just seems like, um, there, there is, I don't know. Sometimes I do get depressed because I think, you know, I've, I've invested so much time and so much mental energy in, you know, arguing with people about whether or not Joey Gathright can make it. And that in terms of, in terms of sports, history moves so fast that all of these things do become just irrelevant uh, oddities really quickly. Um, and so at the time, you know, in the middle of the decade, that's when I was really getting getting started doing it. And, and part of it was just the fun of, uh, of learning how, I wish I'd say that, uh, of, just do, of just blogging and, and, and talking to people online and all of that. Um, but it, I, I do worry if if this current 
crop doesn't I worry both for myself and and in a larger sense for a lot of just the future of the Royals that if this current crop doesn't pan out that I I, I don't know how many people will if the Royals can recover from that and that might be that might be too strong of a statement but I, I do worry about the long-term health of the Royals in Kansas City. Yeah. Well, um, well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about that sort of crop of prospects that's coming up now. Um, I mean, there are a lot of ways to go about it. Uh, probably, sort of the more in- the most interesting thing, uh, because it's a little bit on the nerdly side, is a thing that went up at uh, minor league ball um, t- uh, towards the beginning of January, and um, user slash writer Doug Dirt. I believe usually writes about Cincinnati prospects had uh, used some of Victor Wang's work um, and then some uh, some work from Beyond the Box Score to come up with farm system rankings, right? Using John Sickles' uh, uh, ratings, and uh, the Royals came out far, you know, heads and shoulders above everybody else. Um, I mean, I think that they're only like, you know, Sickles only gives out like ten straight A's total, if that, you know, or seven, I guess, right. and three of them belong to the Royals. Uh, I think Mike Mustakas, Eric Hosmer, and then Will Myers. We, uh, although um, I don't know if that's with grade, you know, with the position change or not. Um, you know, you can talk about those three guys. You can address the other depth if you want. But uh, I mean, are there any guys here that stick out to you as being particularly, you know, as making you particularly excited about, you know, about their futures? Well, I, I think. Um you know, I'll probably embarrass myself a little bit if I try to talk about them too much. Um, but I think that uh, the guy that really excites me the most is Myers, just because uh, he was taken a little bit later in the draft. And he's really one of these people that um, emerged from obscurity to superstardom very quickly. And he he's done nothing but massively produce from the beginning and he it's a case where uh you know he he was drafted for for scouting reasons and that's that was the initial buzz behind him was was scouting buzz but then he showed up in short season rookie ball and hit ridiculously from a statistical standpoint and you know my attitude was well this is interesting. You know, we'll see see what happens. And then the, he did the same thing last year. And really, the only uh, problem through all of this has been the question of whether or not he can stay a catcher. Um, but with the other two, with with Hosmer and Mustakas, you know, at least, um, and perhaps it's to their credit that they've had up, they've had their share of ups and downs um, at the minor league level. But Myers has just been this kind of, I don't know. Uh, out of out of nowhere, Pujolsian dominance from the the minute he's he's emerged in the system, and so that's 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 the guy that I think I'm most most excited about. I, I although I am adamant that he must spell his name with two L's before he reaches the major leagues. He, right. Yeah. I, I was, cannot, Yeah. I was wondering if you were going to take any W-I-L. personal. Right, the personal stake. Because I believe his full name is William, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, I just, and I don't, um, it's just, 
you know, every, every time I see it written out, I'm, I'm used to it now, but I'm not really used to it. And it's just one of those things that it, it just looks wrong and it, um, it bothers me and, um, it just seems unnecessary, but, um, who knows, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it won't change. I'm sure he's, yeah. he swears by it or whatever. His parents love it. So would you, would you say that you find it else. irksome? Is that a appropriate word? Yeah. Like, irksome? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely hurts me a little bit. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, um, if this can double as a sort of counseling session for you, that would, uh, I think that would be ideal. The, um, well, yeah. So you do have guys like like Myers who who just seems to hit where you know wherever he's been, and he's only, you know, um, I mean, uh, I guess he's officially twenty, but he's sort of entering. I guess he's, uh, you know, entering his. This is, yeah, this is his age uh, twenty baseball season, I guess, right? Because um, he only mm-hmm. turned twenty, sort of, uh, in December. Uh, beyond yeah. that, you have, you do have Mustakas, uh, what a third baseman, is that right? Who, um, who, whose, whose defense is maybe, uh, maybe something to be questioned, but we'll, he'll probably stay there because Eric Hosmer's uh, probably at a similar level, and then you just have like. I don't know, like at least three, four pitchers, right? Between Michael Montgomery, John Lamb, um, and uh, you know Aaron Crow. Uh, I don't, I don't by, know. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron. There's Aaron, Aaron Crow. There's uh, Duffy. There's Dwyer. There's uh, Jake Odorizzi who came over in the Greenkey trade. I mean, the the thing about it is, if you if you want to conceptualize the the Royal system, there's the three position player studs. Uh, Hosmer, Mustakas, and Myers. And then there's kind of a glut of pitchers who, uh, you know, everyone kind of has their, their favorites and their own opinions on. Um, and I think there's, you know, about five or six of those guys. And, and Aaron Crow really isn't even, um, one of the, the real favorites at this point. And then after that, you have the, the rest of the system, and there's, um, you know, there's a number of high position player picks. Uh, they took Chris Cologne last year. That was their first round pick. He's a shortstop. Um, they drafted Brett Agner, Ebner, or something like that. Um, and these guys are all, they're all high picks, but they they haven't really done anything. But yeah, that's that's kind of the way the system works. And and all of those pitchers, you know, I, I think being uh, the saber set, you know, my idea is. Just well, half of them are going to flame out or get injured. Uh, another third of the remaining survivors will end up being just effective relievers. And if we can get one frontline starter out of that mix, then then it's a win for the system. Um, and they have they have all kind of had their their own little ups and downs. That Duffy briefly walked away from the game and was. Um, going to be in the seminary or something like that. It's a little unclear what, what was actually going on, but then he came back. Montgomery seems to, um, you know, he was the, he was the consensus number one uh, prospect in the system last year, but a lot of that was a product of Hosmer and Moose uh, kind of finding their own way a little bit um, early in their careers. So all of those guys, um, that's, that's the, that's the, the true pitching depth of the system and it is I think this is the way you would want to have a system um, if you were dreaming of one 
you would want your best players to be the position guys. I think just because there there's so much more certainty um, with the way their careers could could unfold, and then you just want ten pitchers don't really care about the details. Um, you just hope that two or three of them survive and and become useful. Um, now, do you? This is I want to ask you about Dayton Moore. Um, obviously, his line about trusting the process um, has been repeated ad nauseum and mocked, um, you know, just as often as, as it's been repeated. Um, first question: Do you think that this this glut now of prospects is a result of trusting the process, or is it a result of having really high draft picks? And then, secondly, I'll still with regard to Dayton Moore. Even as the prospects come and say, you know, a whole bunch of them are successful, are you still worried about Moore's capacity for identifying, um, like, free agent talent? You know, because this offseason, uh, I mean, maybe with the exception of the Jeff Francis signing, you still have players, uh, of a, you know, they're slightly mystifying involved, um, you know, not the least of which is Jeff Francoeur, who was, you know, obviously destined uh, for the Royals, and um, you know this is going to have to be a, a case where if the Royals are going to, you know, uh, make their way up the standings in the AL Central, uh, that they're going to have to have some kind of talent to complement the uh, you know the prospects that will be coming up to the system. Is that going to concern you? Well, on the first question about trusting the process, I I do think that you know it would be it would be dishonest and it would be kind of craven to not give Dayton Moore his proper credit for building the system to this point. Um, and I certainly would, you know, I have my serious reservations about um, a lot of, you know, the future of the team, but I, I do think you have to give him, some, you know, a big big share of the credit. Although the the thing that I think is, is difficult for us, especially um Outsiders is that, and and you speak. You actually spoke to this in your uh, the post you did this week at Fangraphs about the, you know looking at individual scouts. Is that it's a big misconception to think that Dayton Moore or any major league you know DGM is the guy that's even running the draft on draft day. Um, I think it's much more complicated about that, and that. There are scores, you know, there's um, the assistant GMs, there's the scouting directors, there's the player development directors, there's the scouts themselves. There's really, for, for any team, whether they're competent or, or good, bad, or indifferent, there's all of these people involved. And so, you know, is it is it really J.J. Piccolo, who's one of the assistant GMs? Is he truly the the, the genius that has built this? Is it the individual scouts themselves, some of some of which are holdovers, some of which are are new guys. I mean, some of the most promising royal drafts of the last five years were actually overseen by Derek Ladner, who was a holdover from the other regime, and who was fired two years ago. Um, and so, when you put all that together, I mean, it's. It, it almost becomes it's like it's like so much else in sports. I mean, we we're going to give way more of the credit and way more of the blame to one individual um, 
but that's it, it's been more complicated than that. The other thing that about trusting the process is that um, you know the Royals have become the Yankees of the amateur of the amateur world uh, over the last three or four years, and this may have changed a little bit most recently. But they spent more than anybody else. Um, they spent more on signing bonuses. They spent more on the amateur market. They created a new rookie league team in Burlington, North Carolina. They expanded their facilities in the Dominican. Um, so again, it's it's not as sexy to to just actually commit to spending money and to sign overslot guys and stuff like that. I mean, that doesn't valorize your genius. Um, but it has been it has been part of the process that we were instructed to trust. And um, after a rocky start, it is it is starting to pay off. Um, all right. Well, I won't force you uh, to talk much more than you have to uh, about about that about about Dave Moore. Um, but th- that's all good stuff. Uh, I want to shift uh, slightly uh, to address um, sort of you and and uh, your work on the blog, in particular. I'm curious about uh, one piece, um, and th- this is something that can happen. Um, I'm talking about the uh, uh, the post you wrote uh, in early December, early mid-December, uh, uh, entitled "Carl Crawford to Open Antiquarian Bookstore in Boston." Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> this was a piece you did and delivered uh, in a in a rather earnest tone um, about uh, then a new free agent signing for the Boston Red Sox, Carl Crawford, um, being able to uh, live out his dream uh, by uh, opening an antiquarian bookstore in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, one of our um, nation's oldest cities. Um, t- two things about that. Uh, well, first of all, it's amazing. Uh, second of all, um, you are probably aware of the fact that uh, not everyone knew it was a joke. Um, including, I believe, yeah. the Los Angeles Times, which is a uh, an actual news source. Um, uh-huh. it, now, um, you know, again, as an outsider, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, I'm only taking, you know, making so many trips to Royals Review um, because there are 29 other teams. Is this is this sort of like a, a thing that's fun for you to do? And just with regard to this post in particular, uh, were you sort of surprised that some people didn't get the joke? <laughs> Yeah, I was I was shocked, um, and I can remember, um, you know, it was it's the middle of December. The winter meetings had already happened. Uh, the Royals had already signed Jeff Francoeur. You know, that was like four days of insanity and just you know constant writing and people commenting and point and counterpoint. And then they signed Melky Cabrera, which is just kind of a classic. WTF signing. I mean, I don't, it's not. It just, I don't even know how to process it, but it's classic Dayton Moore. And so we did all of that, and um, you know, it's just it's the dead of winter, and I, I kind of from time to time do sort of just rant, whimsical. Um, I guess you could say it's satire. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's it's more just random. Um, but I did the post about Carl Crawford and. Um, you know, after I did it, I actually was worried that it was a little bit, perhaps, mean-spirited um, in some ways. But, you know, it, it I didn't really think much of it. I, I went up on a Sunday afternoon, and I thought, you know, well, we'll go back to talking Royals, uh, 
you know, by Sunday night, which ended up happening. But the uh, the thing it really took on a life of its own, and it's um, it's probably the first thing from Rolls Review that ever truly went viral outside of the kind of baseball blogging world. And I started noticing on Twitter on Sunday night and Monday afternoon that all of these people who clearly weren't baseball fans, um, if I could be stereotypical about like, judging from their like Twitter profiles, yeah. Yeah. Were, were, were passing it along and were really, really happy about it and clearly thought that it was real. Um, and I guess what, hap- what part of what happened is that a couple, a bookstore in Cambridge tweeted it, and then that sent it out to this huge, bigger audience, and then a couple literary blogs. And um, I got a, I started getting emails from people who were sort of within the bookstore community in Boston. Uh, one guy emailed me asking for Crawford's contact info. Another guy... Which, which naturally you, know, you have because un- you're very good friends with Carl Crawford. Right, right. Well, I mean, I just interviewed him, and you know, I spent the day with him kind of driving around Boston. Um, and then uh, someone else, you know, I think in in that post I said something like, um, you know, Crawford collects everything related to the Salem Witch Trials, and he plans to live in Salem. And somebody, in, uh, a guy who ran, runs a bookstore in Salem emailed me basically saying, like, please tell Carl Crawford not to open his store in Salem. Like, I, the very, this is a very tough place to, to survive, and we don't, you know, he, he, he needs to stay out of Salem if he's going to open this store. And so, uh, by Monday night, the LA Times was, was emailing me about it. And they emailed me, and the reporter said, this has been passed along to me from a number of people, and I think that you're joking, but I, I want to talk to you about it. Uh-huh. And oh, I and again, I just I, I couldn't get. I mean, aside from the fact that the subject matter of it is ludicrous, I I don't know how someone would think a Royals website would be reporting. I mean, a Royals blog would be reporting on this story with this kind of access to a player uh, and no one else has written about it but that's neither here nor there so um, but then the story went to another level of insanity when on that same Monday night Carl Crawford himself tweeted that he was going to open a book (laughs) and if you go back on, on Crawford's Twitter feed his like verified you know, Twitter account, and you you can still see this, and because you know when people send you replies on Twitter, um, there you, you can you can get them publicly, I guess. And so I was getting lots of Twitter replies to me and to Crawford from people that looked like were actually his friends, um, and you know I probably shouldn't say how I came to that conclusion, but just people that you know were listed in Tampa and. Uh, lots of attractive young women and stuff like this that um, really appeared to know Carl Crawford, and and they were all saying like, "Is this real? Like, oh my God, you know, are you doing this? Are you seeing this?" Blah blah. So he he must have like found out about it from people that he actually responds to and, and reads, and then he posted that he was going to open a bookstore, and then that 
that for me was like set off like two days of uh, terror and excitement and not really knowing what to do. And I was really contemplating uh, contacting his agent and telling him like, Carl Crawford really needs to do this. This is a <laughs> this is a, a wonderful opportunity for Carl Crawford because if you think about it, every one of these players. Um, they all have their foundations and their charities, and, uh, and I'm sure they do wonderful work. And if you just think about the nature of a baseball game, the whole challenge to the broadcasters is still in time. And you have the Red Sox, who are on national TV constantly, and if Carl Crawford had a bookstore, every single ESPN broadcast of the Red Sox would talk about that. You know, They would show Carl Crawford stealing a base, and then uh, Boog Shambi would say, and the Renaissance man swipes second or whatever. <laughs> and it's it wouldn't take a lot of infrastructure to run a bookstore, and I was perfectly willing to do it. And just because of the sheer power of all things Red Sox, I'm sure that it could survive and possibly even thrive, and we would just need Crawford to do a couple, you know, celebrity appearances, and the the publicity that it would generate would, would take care of it. Um so then I waited out those two days. I continued to get messages from people um, asking me about it, asking for Crawford's info. Um, the New York Times ended up uh, writing about it on their blog. And it all came, came crashing down a couple days later when Crawford then tweeted something like, ha-ha, I guess you guys didn't know I was joking. I'm I'm just kidding about the bookstore or something. And that, that was the end of it. Um, but... It, it was a very bizarre moment when I was trying to convince this woman at the LA Times that it was just a kind of amateur satire and we were exchanging emails and then she said well Carl Crawford just tweeted about this so then it seemed, uh, the, the attitude I got from her was that this was some kind of PR stunt that I was doing with Carl Crawford um, and again, why a Royals blog would be would be kind of fronting any of this uh, never really got got questioned by anybody. Um, but that was definitely a very bizarre experience and a very cool one as well. Yeah, that is uh, bizarre um, and uh, pretty amazing uh, that, that would unfold. Um, uh, well, Mr. McDonald, it's it's been really great to to have you on uh, this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for talking about the Royals and uh, and your experiences as a fan and uh, as a uh, as a writer for for that team. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, uh, it's been uh, Will McDonald. I have been and will hopefully continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.